seats. That would be wonderful. As you do, grab your Bibles and head on over to Matthew chapter 7. We are in the closing chapter of this series, and we're beginning this, uh, this last chapter, chapter 7 of the Sermon on the Mount, as, as Jesus begins, uh, not necessarily to, to shut things down, but he's certainly going to get to parts in chapter 7, which are just intended to summarize what has been said and kind of close down the sermon towards the end there. But I've made the statement a few times along the way, through chapters 5 and 6, that Jesus has some really hard things to say. In the Sermon on the Mount. And that becomes even more true when we get to chapter 7. Those hard things that we might have wrestled through in chapters 5 and 6, they really don't compare to some of the things that we will wrestle through in chapter 7. And he continues to be very blunt and very bold and very clear. And what's amazing is that in the midst of saying these really hard things... Things that oftentimes you might wonder if that would drive a crowd away. At the very end of this sermon, everybody just goes, holy smokes, we're amazed. And they're astonished at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority. Not as their scribes or their Pharisees or their religious leaders did. And so in the the midst of this sermon in which Jesus pulls no punches... The crowd sits back and goes, oh my, we've heard something we've never heard before. And one of my prayers for us is that that might just be true every time we gather. Not that you find me amazing, that's not at all the prayer, but it's that we would find God's word amazing. And that we would be astonished by the authority of God's word that when we hear that, and to the degree that, that we work and aim for that to be rightly communicated, that we would be astonished because there's an authority that God has spoken with. And so this morning in our text, we have one that is difficult to both interpret and apply. It's difficult to interpret because we need to take the context of what Jesus has said along with other passages in the New Testament and and try to get a full scope of what this idea is regarding judging other people. That phrase, don't judge me, is quite a popular one often can be heard and often can be shouted amongst and in the midst of conversations. If somebody's telling somebody else that they shouldn't be doing something, don't judge me. Who are you? What right do you have? All of those types of statements. And so the, the sermon and section this morning can be certainly difficult to interpret, but then its application, quite frankly, touches every part of our lives. And so in that sense, it's also challenging to apply because its application is so wide. And I'm not going to be able to in any way, stretch, or form this morning touch on all of the different ways and possibilities that we can apply this. So what we're aiming for is the big idea. I'll give you some points of application along the way to just help you unpack it, but then the work that is left to be done is with you and 
the scriptures and the Holy Spirit to figure out how this makes specific application in the specific areas of your life going forward. And really at the heart, the main issue in the text this morning is one of standards. It's an issue of standards and are we going to hold ourselves to the same standard as we may be inclined to hold others to? We're going to unpack that a little further and I, Lord willing, that'll make sense for us as we do so. But let's pray and then we'll read the text and we'll try to start walking through it and see if we can't make sense of it together. God in heaven, God, we believe that you have spoken and as we do every Sunday morning, we pray and ask that you would just speak now. God, we're drawing near to listen Not to listen to my words, but to listen to your word. And so, God, I pray for accuracy in the words that I say, that they would be truthful and they would be right. But God, we want to hear from you. We need to hear from you. And so, God, help us to understand this passage. Help us to see where and how it applies in our lives. God, help us to think well and rightly about these things. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's go to Matthew 7. We'll look at the text here together, beginning in verse 1. We'll read through verse 6. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take out the log of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give to dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. So part of the difficulty in interpreting this text is with the word judge. What does that mean? What is Jesus telling us not to do? The word judge is quite frankly a a bit of a challenging one to unpack and understand. But I think one of the best ways for us to understand it is not just simply passing a verdict. Not just simply saying you did something wrong, but then also going the step further and and then giving and bringing condemnation for what has been done. And as I just said a moment ago, I think the issue in this entire text is one of standards. And what Jesus is saying is that we should hold ourselves to the same standard as we are inclined to hold others to. And we need to be very mindful of that. And so as we've tried to do over and throughout the Sermon on the Mount, I've tried to give you examples from Jesus' interactions with religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, where that perhaps provides an illustration for us of where these things happened in his own life and ministry. And this morning is no different because Jesus encountered these these types of judgments, these types of condemnations, time and time and time again throughout his ministry. 
And it was a couple years ago, I think it was the first major book that we ever walked through together, the book of Mark, that we, we actually thought through a lot of those. And I just want to just rattle off a few of them for you. It's in chapter 2 of Mark that Jesus' followers are condemned for plucking grain on the Sabbath. Now, here's the deal. They did break a law that the religious rulers had created. But they didn't break a law that God had given. And so whenever it comes to whether or not Jesus is right or these guys are right, I'm going to pick Jesus every time. And so in that passage, Jesus and his followers did not do anything wrong, though they did break one of the Pharisees' laws. And they got condemned for it. And it was just a little bit thereafter that Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath. What happens? They condemn him again for doing things on the Sabbath. In the the latter part of Mark chapter 2, they get condemned for not fasting. In Mark 3, Jesus casts out a demon and he's actually accused of doing so by the power of Satan. It's in Mark 4 where the paralytic gets carried by his friends to the house. They can't get him in the front door, so they go up on the roof. They start tearing the roof up. They lower him down. Everybody's there. Jesus tells the man, your sins are forgiven. They scoff at him. Anybody can say that. He goes, all right, well, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk. Well, your sins are forgiven is much easier to say because there's no visible, demonstrable proof that can be offered in that moment. Jesus says, well, so that you know that I'm who I say I am. All right, brother, get up and walk. And the guy just gets up and walks. He gets condemned for it. In Mark 7, they get condemned for not ceremonially washing their hands. Now, Jesus and his disciples were not against cleanliness. This was a ceremonial hand washing. It was a bunch of laws the religious rulers had come up with that you had to do before you did whatever because it had to do with cleanliness and uncleanliness and all of these things, and they didn't do that. And he gets condemned for it. And there are example after example after example in Jesus' life and ministry where his actions are not wrong. However, they are condemned. But if we think through and fast forward to today, as I mentioned earlier, this idea of judge not or don't judge me is a favorite, of I, favorite idea that gets expressed all the time in our world. I mean, it, it in some ways is the favorite Bible verse of those who may not even ever read the Bible. Judge or don't judge me. And what that is at the heart of it is there is a prevailing worldview and way of life that just simply says, I get to choose my own rules, I get to live by the rules that I choose, and you have no right to tell me that the rules I've chosen or how I follow my own rules that I have chosen is either right or wrong. I want to put it in philosophical terms, it's moral relativism. It's the worldview philosophy that that is. Now, what happens is, is that if all of us lived that way, and you had your own rules, and I had my own rules, when my rules allow me to enter your home and take all of your stuff, and your rules don't, there's now some serious conflict that happens. And which one of us are right? If everything's just relative and defined by however I want it defined, well then, we're both right, but 
there's going to be some conflict. And this idea of don't judge me is at the very heart of this. Don't tell me that what I've done is wrong. But here's where, as believers, we have to think differently about that. And here's where we can't just accept that as the interpretation of this passage or a way to actually live and flourish within life. Because left to themselves, people want to and do pursue all sorts of destructive choices. And if all we do is take the position that says, I don't engage, I don't speak, let them do what they want to do, we have tacitly applauded them towards destruction. There has to be a different way that we engage. And I think this passage unfolds that and unpacks that for us. But even the idea of being a disciple of Christ involves two different parts of following. One of those parts is instruction. We are told from the scriptures what to do. The other part of that is correction. We find out from the scriptures when we and how we might have erred. And there's correction given. And the same things happen even in the context of relationships with one another. Jesus says in Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. We refer to this as the church discipline passage. If you want to kind of know more of what our church believes or how we would walk through a church discipline thing, we've got actually a, a paper on our website that was primarily authored by Justin Walter. It's tremendous in walking through and outlining how we would approach that. But you see there it begins with just a conversation. Hey, you've sinned against me. I was offended by what you said or your actions or whatever. And if we're just going to define judging as not being able to point that out, then these passages are in conflict with one another. But Jesus here gives clear instruction that if and when we've been offended by somebody, we're to just go and have a conversation. And the goal, Lord willing, is that it stops there. He or she listens and you've gained your brother. The Apostle Paul talks about this idea of judging those with inside the church and actually uses the word judge to describe that in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 to 13. We're not going to spend a lot of time here because I'm planning on us walking through the book of 1 Corinthians come 2019. But he writes, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality, greed, is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Here's what was going on in this church. They had received the good news of the gospel, and some had taken that good news to then be a, a, a blank check that allowed them to do whatever they wanted because God's grace would forgive me, or God is gracious and will forgive me. And so there were at least one specific person who was involved in an inappropriate relationship with his mother-in-law, and the church celebrated it. 
they cheered him on for it under this banner of, well, you've got a blank check. We don't define sin as sin anymore because we have forgiveness, past, present, and future. You just go, you go do what you want to do because God's grace is going to cover that even if it is wrong. And Paul goes, whoa, 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 you guys got to pump the brakes here for a moment. Now, I'm actually telling you that if anybody claims to be a brother, if anybody says, I believe in Jesus, but their lifestyle is marked by sexual immorality, greed, idolatry, reviling, that's, that's a sin of our words, drunkenness, or swindling, don't spend any time with them. Don't share a meal together. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Exact same words as Matthew 7. God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. Here Paul is giving us very clear and explicit instruction that if somebody claims to be a believer, but has a lifestyle demonstrated completely the opposite, we don't allow ourselves to associate with them. That there comes a point in time, if they are unwilling to repent of that, that we don't even share meals together with them because there's some serious things going on here. And their claim of being a believer is in contradiction to their lifestyle. But he doesn't apply that same line of thought and reasoning to those outside of the church. Implied in this passage is that continue having dinner with those people who don't claim to be a brother. Because it gives you an opportunity for gospel witness. And there's a different standard given to those inside the church as opposed to those outside. One more, just real quickly, just trying to show you how the idea of I don't have any right or permission to judge you is a wrong interpretation. Brothers, if anyone's caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So here you have somebody has done something and those who are spiritual in a spirit of gentleness. So don't, don't ignore the spirit of gentleness part. I think oftentimes we might set that one aside and decide to come in with a spirit of anger or a spirit of harshness or a spirit of accusations. It's a spirit of gentleness. Restore them. But keep watch lest you too be Tempted. So just trying to get our minds wrapped around what it is that Jesus is saying in that. Judge not that you be not judged. I submit to you the idea here is one of standards. And what Jesus is prohibiting is judgmentalism. And the idea that he has before us is that the standard we would have for someone else must be the standard we have for ourselves, and that standard must be the Scriptures. In verse 2, we see that unpack a little further. With the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Here, I think, is one of the best ways that I see this play out in my life, considering the idea of standards and how the standards that I hold myself to should be the standards that I hold you to and vice versa. When I get pulled over, it's happened once, got a speeding ticket. When I got pulled over, I wanted mercy. I wanted a warning. Maybe he'll let me off. It's 
yes sir, here sir, all the, you know, all the sirs and your heart's racing a mile a minute, and it, 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 what, what can I do to, to just not have a fine, and, and yes, I was wrong, give me a warning, please, but at the same time, when you go flying past me, and I'm looking for my own warning, I want you pulled over. I want you to face and find some judgment, when at the very same time, I'm finding myself wanting mercy. And here Jesus is saying, No, there needs to be consistency there. If you want mercy in your own life, then you apply mercy to the lives of others. You want judgment for them, okay, but that's what you're going to get. Now, how does that work? The judgment there, the measure, those words that are used are used in a, certain, in a specific way that the context and the language is clear that we're talking about divine judgment I have no idea how that works. And quite frankly, I don't want to find out. It sounds terrifying. It's part of the warning in this passage that God will hold us to the standard we hold others to. So is that standard a merciful standard? Is it a gracious standard? It's not a standard that excuses sin, but it's one that seeks rec. The restoration and the spirit of gentleness. So I want to try to maybe unpack this in a couple different areas. One of them is the area of wisdom and discernment. So we're not specifically talking about areas of sin. We're not talking about areas of black or white. We're talking about areas of wisdom or discernment where there is quite frankly freedom. For some agreements, some agreeing to disagree, some different conclusions that get reached along the way. Okay, so a couple examples. Um, We are an early bedtime family. Some of you are late bedtime families. It's an area of wisdom and discernment. I don't know where there's a verse that says this is the bedtime your kids have to go to bed at. And so how do we interact with each other? could be an area of judgment. I can't believe they do this. And that can cut both ways. But it's an area of discernment and it's an area of judgment. Public school, homeschool, Republican, Democrat. I mean, you can just go right on down the line. All of these different things can be areas of wisdom, discernment, that if we're not careful, we can just be grumbling and judging and all of this. All right, so let me give you a a, a financial example. Okay? Got two people in this example. We're going to try to put up, there we go, a little table on the chart. Okay, so... Person one and person two both need to buy a car. Now, person one and person two are both giving 15% of their annual income to the church. So I just wanted to, at the very beginning, say they are outrageously generous. Okay, so that's not the question here. Here's what they do. Person one... Spends 5% of his income on a car purchase. Person 2 spends 9%. All right, so a little class participation here now. If you think person 1 made a better financial decision, raise your hand, please. And yes, I am baiting a trap, so just play along with me, okay? All right, if you think person number 2 has made a better financial decision, raise your hand, okay? All right, very good. Person one and person two can find themselves, if they're not careful, grumbling against one another. 
Person one could go, I can't believe you spent 9% of your income on a car. I only spent 5% of income on my car. And they could be grumbling against that person who's spending that. So that may be another layer of detail. And I realize this illustration probably breaks down in a dozen different ways. And it may break down even more if you think of others. But what if person one spent $52,400 on the car and person two only spent just shy of five grand? Does your vote change? It, it probably changes. Probably changes. So if you flipped, now you might find yourself, if you're in the camp of person two, grumbling against person one. I can't believe you spent $46,000 more on a car than I spent on a car. And yeah, come on, he could have gone to Grace Kids 2020 and you know all of that kind of stuff. We can grumble and find ways to make judgments in this area of wisdom and discernment. But what if I told you what kind of car they bought? It might even ramp it up another notch because well, we can be judgmental, quite frankly. What if person one bought a 2018 Mercedes-Benz and person two bought a 2009 Camry? Would you feel any different about it then? You might. If you do, it may just be revealing that there's a little bit of that judgmentalism in you in this area of wisdom and discernment. So the income of person two was the, uh, the median income for American families, $56,000. That's where I kind of marked my math there. The income for person one was a million. Uh, you might think that's a little far-fetched. Perhaps it is for us I don't know what any of you make. Um, I do know that there are Grace Brethren churches in America that have professional athletes that attend there. So a million dollars for professional athletes, not a stretch. So it's not without or outside of the realm of possibility. And just to, I guess, do the math because it's fun, um, if they're giving 15% of their income to the local church, person one gave $150,000 to the local church that year, and person two gave $8,400. So $8,400 is not chump change, but it probably doesn't compare to $150,000. What do we do? It's an area of wisdom and discernment. I'm not going to tell you which one I'd pick. You've got to wrestle through these things yourself. It's an area of wisdom and discernment, but Jesus is saying, you've got to you got to not be judgmental. There's areas of sin, though. And we can oftentimes hold each other to a different standard than we'd hold ourselves. The Bible very clearly says, as those verses we looked at earlier, that we have a responsibility to one another to not excuse Sin, if your brother sins against you, go show him his fault just between the two of you. If anyone gets caught in an act of transgression, you who are spiritual, go and restore them. Verses 3 to 5, I think, specifically deal with how we interact then when it's not an area of wisdom and discernment, but an area of sin. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that is in your own. 
Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The words there that Jesus uses in each of those three verses, speck and log, are defined this way. Um, A speck really is just a piece of sawdust. So here's a bag that's got some sawdust in it, but we're just talking about one of those little pieces of sawdust is the speck. The word could also be used to describe a splinter or a piece of chaff that would have been broken and blown as as grain would have been harvested and prepared to be stored. So we're not talking about something that's immense at all. And Jesus is purposefully using something that is really, really tiny and something that is really, really big to make his point. And his point is way overstated. And quite frankly, I think he's probably trying to do so to be humorous at this point. Have every single person listening to him chuckling to themselves about this image that he has just given to them. But then they understand what he's trying to say. So the first person, it would be you have a speck in your eye. And that would have been just one of these little things of sawdust. But I've got this two by six sitting here. And this will represent the log there that we can have coming out of our eyes. Now, here's the deal. This doesn't even come close to describing what the word log actually means. The word log, as Jesus used it, actually means a beam of wood, and it is used to describe the main beams that hold structures together. So look up. That's the idea. We've got a two by or a six by six that's ten feet long in the back part of our house where we have some stones. We've got some off-street parking. Yesterday, I thought about bringing that in, and and I picked it up, and I got it standing up, and I went to lift it, and I go, nope, we're going to lay that one back down because it just wasn't going to happen. So I was like, well, we're going to have to imagine with a two-by-six. But here's the word picture. And Jesus is purposely given us this picture for a couple reasons. One is, there's a bit of an audacity that takes place. You have to be audacious to think that if this is coming out of your head, you've got the right to go and figure out how you can get a pair of tweezers to fix whatever's in theirs. It'd be like somebody with mounds and mounds and mounds of debt trying to give you financial advice. Not like the don't do it the way I did it advice. That that has its place. Like here's how I screwed up. Don't screw up that way. That's got a place. I'm talking about the, hey, this is how you go and invest all your money just like I did. But you've got a hundred grand in debt. Yeah, I know. And you can have the same. What? So there's a bit of an audaciousness that actually occurs when this is coming out of your head and you want to grab a pair of tweezers and go fix whatever somebody else has. But then there's a real impracticality to it as well. And that's what Jesus says in verse 4. You can't even get close enough to get the speck out if you've got a log coming out of your face. 
And he uses a word there in verse 5 that at, up until this point in the entire sermon, he has only used to describe unbelievers. And the word he uses there in a description of believers, because he clearly refers to brothers three different times, is the word hypocrite. You hypocrite. In your mind, the very worst thing that can happen is that that person has a speck. And you're unwilling to recognize that you've got a log. Now, in all three of those verses, Jesus never gives any indication that the speck or the log don't matter. He never once says, forget about the speck. Just focus on the log, forget about the speck. The speck's actually not that big of a deal, don't worry about it. Just you worry about the log, worry about the big stuff, don't worry about the little stuff. He never once says that. Now he says, first take care of the log, and then you can go and take care of the speck. And here's how I think some of this plays itself out. And we looked at this slide when we were in Matthew chapter 5 when he was being real clear about how we were to think about lust and battle that. I think there can be a real tendency among believers to pick and choose and qualify what sins are better or worse than other sins. Where you have three passages that the conclusion of every one of these passages are those who practice the things on this list are actually not believers. But we can look at a list like that and go, all right, yeah, take Galatians 5. All right, maybe there's some sexual immorality. Maybe I didn't turn the channel when the Victoria's Secret commercial came on and I chose to look instead of look away. But at least I never had an orgy. Sure, I might have fits of anger. But at least I'm not an idolater. At least I'm not a sorcerer. We can look at a list in 1 Corinthians 6 and say, yeah, I might be greedy. But at least I'm not a homosexual. We can qualify these things on this list. And we very easily begin defining specks and logs. When the consistent refrain and theme of the New Testament is that every single one of those is wrong and not a single one of those is to be celebrated, tolerated, So there can be a real tendency or temptation in some of us to say, yeah, I know, but, yeah, I know I got a log, but they got a speck. Like, don't I have an obligation to, like, help them get the speck? And, but as I shared in that morning as well, there can be an opposite temptation in regards to this list to think that some of those things need more forgiveness or more grace than others. 
And both of those are not true. Every single thing on that list, however we would define it, needs the grace of Jesus Christ. And we don't excuse some things as okay and tolerable and some things as not okay and intolerable. So I want to think through just briefly here maybe how we might apply this in the church. Perhaps a couple ways these truths could be applied in the community and as we interact with our world. Regarding the church, I would first say that we need to have some clear distinctions between what are areas of wisdom and discernment and what are areas of sin. We need to have some clear distinction there. You may disagree with somebody else's bedtime plans or how they choose to school their kids or whatever, but it's an area of wisdom and discernment. And there's room. There has to be room because it's not a gospel issue. It's not an issue of sin. It's not an issue of any of that. But then there are issues of sin which we need to lovingly engage those conversations. And we need to, in a spirit of gentleness, seek those conversations. Secondly, we have to have, and this would be specifically in areas of sin, we have to have the same standard for ourselves as we would have and hold others to. And this was the big idea really behind why we have a membership covenant. Because that document outlines not standards that our church has creatively developed, but just the standards we believe the New Testament outlines. And if you think back, if you were here when we were passing that document around and asking and inviting feedback and buy-in, one of the consistent questions that I kept asking you is if you see anything in there that is not specifically outlined in the Scriptures, tell us. Because we weren't interested in saying, you can't dance if you are a member of our church. Scriptures don't say that. But we're interested in being clear about what the scriptures do say and having a clear standard. So we need to be clear about what the areas of wisdom and discernment are and what the areas of sin are. And then we need to hold ourselves to the same standard we would hold others to. A couple different ways that I think this passage applies in the church. Let's go a little broader and think about the world. I'm going to refer back to something we talked a couple months ago about. It was an article in the GQ magazine. If you remember that, if you were here that morning, there was an article of the 20 books that you once were told or that you're told you should read that you don't have to read anymore. And the Bible is put onto this list. And so some author of GQ is saying, hey, everybody says you got to read the Bible, but you really don't. And one of the reasons and rationales he gives for why he arrived at that conclusion is because the majority of people that say you should read the Bible haven't actually read the Bible. That's a problem. So as you engage in the world, have the same standard. You're going to tell somebody to do something. Are you doing it yourself? Because if you don't, you completely undercut Everything that you've just said. Yeah, you've got to read this book, but I've never actually read the book. What? Here's another, probably more specific way that I think this can apply. 
in regards to um, our stance on being pro-life. That's pro-all life. Not just pro-life in the womb. It's pro-life from the moment of conception all the way through till the moment of natural death. And I've been watching the news and I've been watching and observing the church is getting hammered on this one because we want to scream that babies are people from the moment of conception but we don't find ourselves caring for others if we're going to say that we're pro-life that's pro-all life if we don't we find ourselves undercutting our whole argument we're pro-image of God we're pro-born in his image we're pro-human beings There's got to be a consistency to the standard there. We got to take what God says about people born and made in his image and apply it through. Jesus wants us to have a consistent standard that we live by. I think he wants us to be real clear about what are areas of sin and dis- or areas of wisdom and discernment and what are areas of sin. And I want to go back just here in closing to that phrase in the passage in Galatians where Paul talks about restoring in a spirit of gentleness. Because I think there's another way that we often can find ourselves undercutting ourselves when we forget that part. We forget to be merciful in the ways that we have received mercy. We forget to be loving in the ways that we have received love. We forget to be gentle in the ways that God has been gentle with us. We forget that one of the attributes of love, one of the ways that love is defined is the word kindness. And we see something we might not agree with and we come like a, like a bull in a china shop when we come ramming forward to make our voice heard and our position known and we forget all of those things. We forget about mercy and we forget about grace and we forget about love and we forget about gentleness because we have to be heard. And you may have the right thing to say, but I would submit to you that at that point, if you've not come with gentleness and mercy and grace, but rather with anger and harshness, and abrasiveness, nobody's heard you anyways. You have long turned off their attention to what you may have to say because you've ignored the instruction that we engage in a spirit of gentleness. So we're going to close this morning singing an old spiritual hymn, They Will Know We Are Christians By Our Love. Would they? Will they? Might they? Jesus said that would be the defining characteristic of his disciples. Is it for you? Let's pray. God, every single one of us has something to consider here. And I pray that our love for you and one another 
whether we agree with one another or whether we disagree with one another, would be characterized by love. And that it would be patient. And that it would be kind. And it would be within a spirit of gentleness. And it would reflect and model the ways that you have loved us. And God, I pray that you would help us to grow more and more in these ways. Individually and as a church. And I pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.